You're listening to Tell Me More, a podcast for amplifying the work of graduate students. I'm your host, Wilfredo Flores, or just Will. This is a show where we ask graduate students a singular question, tell me more. So let's get into the episode. Hi there, welcome to Tell Me More, where we chat with graduate students about their work, ideas, and more. In this episode, I'm chatting with Tyler Gillespie, a second year PhD student at the University of Memphis. Welcome, Tyler. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I am a second year PhD student at University of Memphis, like you said, and I'm a Floridian, and I'm coming to you from Florida right now because I'm teaching virtually and quarantining Mm -hmm. with my grandmother here in Florida. Okay, cool. Well, I guess not cool because of the quarantine, but (laughs) all that sounds great. Yeah. So you're here to give us an overview of your research on rhetorical practices in Florida's LGBTQ community. The specific article, the specific article you want to discuss has been accepted for the Routledge Handbook of Queer Rhetoric. Um, As you say, the self-published women's words ran from 1983 to 2011 and is known as Florida's oldest gay publication. It established a lesbian mecca in Gulfport, and your chapter is going to focus on the publication's text text creation, collaborative production, and circulation as a means of place-based community formation. That all sounds fascinating, so please tell me more. (laughs) Thank you. So I'm going to give you the kind of long story about how this came about, Um, which isn't really that long. So I have a master's in journalism and media studies from the University of South Florida, St. Pete, here in the Tampa Bay area. And so for one of my, one of my classes on covering elections, I was assigned to cover Gulfport, which is a little town of about 12,000 folks that's near adjacent to St. Pete. And something like 30% of folks, residents there are LGBTQ members. Um, and so I, that's partially why I got assigned because I was covering a lot of like LGBT political stuff. And so I started covering it um, a few years ago and I knew some folks who lived there, mostly lesbians who um, I had met, you know, through different ways, but I didn't really, you know, think about doing too much about the town until I was interviewing fast forward this past year I was talking to a Florida State representative Jennifer Webb and we were just talking um, I was interviewing her and then she mentioned Gulfport again because she lived there she lives there and she was like yeah I moved there because I was told like oh all the girls live there you know because she was from up north so when she was moving to Florida and then she was telling me that she was like, oh, did you, you know, I've heard that, you know, Gulfport was started as a lesb- lesbian separatist community back in the 70s. Whoa. Right. <laughs> so, you know, when I heard that and I was so close to Gulfport, I needed to know more about that. Um, just, you know, as a former journalist and just someone who's like, you know, interested in those kind of stories. 
So then that kind of got me onto and introduced to some of the folks that I am writing about in the article. And so, you know, usually when we think about like separatist communities, they're in like very rural areas, like I think there's one in Alabama or, you know, somewhere in Florida that's very rural, but Gulfport really isn't. It's, you know, has a right near St. Pete. So anyway, then I was kind of put into contact with different community members who had started Women's Words and just a fascinating history about how they were producing the text and, and all of that kind of thing. Oh, that sounds awesome. Can I ask, like, how are you kind of approaching the whole story? Like, is there a particular, or uh, the entire project, is there a particular methodological consideration you're taking? Like through those journalistic kind of tell me your story interview practices? So, you know, I've been writing about <clears throat> like the LGBTQ community for about a decade now, mm. but only recently have I been able to like understand frame it as rhetorical practice, right? right? And so through graduate study, hello, <laughs> that's helped. So my methodology or my methods are like semi-structured interviews hmm. and observation when I can. Um, so this started, I have like more uh, kind of different chapters. This is kind of the first one that I'm, I'm kind of working on. So I can't really observe the um the they they have this organization called the Women's Energy Bank and it kind of disbanded a couple like a few years ago but I can't mm. really observe a because it was a women's only space mm. so a as a male identified person I could not observe that right um and now they're they're not so that that was some interesting ethical stuff which I can talk about uh, later and inform my methodologies. Right. So this stuff, I'm doing textual analysis as well because they published women's words for so many years and I'm doing archival research of ephemera and stuff that wasn't necessarily published, right? So those are the main kind of methods that I'm using, a lot of interviews um, and textual analysis. And so part of my methods as well, which is a lot different than, yes, they are informed by like my journalism background and but something that I wouldn't do in journalism that I'm do, that I do now is kind of circulate drafts to the people that I'm interviewing. Right. Yeah. To get, you know, so it's more collaborative, which I wouldn't, that it's interesting because like as a journalist, you're not, I was taught never do that. Like, right. like that's out yeah. of the question, but in this kind of like more qualitative research um, in my methods, I can circulate it to folks to make sure that I'm, accurately presenting them and right. yeah. Yeah, there's a dimension of relationality there that, so I totally see that, yeah, how big of a shift it goes from actually accounting for those community members and taking care of their stories as it were and like letting them know like, hey, is this okay? And like working collaborati collaboratively in that way. One thing that you said that was really interesting and actually reminded me of an experience I had too. I, so there's in Lansing, Michigan, there is a women's festival that happens yeah. every year. Yeah. And when I went there to volunteer for um, like an outreach thing for our writing center, I encountered a lesbian connection, which is the name yes. of the magazine. Yes. <laughs> and I remember reading it and being like, oh, wow. Like, of course, as a cis gay man, I feel sometimes I'm too into those cis gay male spaces and don't really pay much attention to our uh, mm -hmm. our relatives across the queer community. 
And I remember reading the magazine and then saying like, if you're a man, you can't read this. And I was like, yes. oh, well, let me put this down. <laughs> yes. So can you talk to me a little bit about, was that kind of a, not confrontation, because that seems kind of, I don't know, it describes some kind of violence, but can you tell me what that was like to like, oh, maybe sometimes these stories aren't meant to be told, at least by someone like me, maybe? Yes. I mean, that's something that I'm still trying to figure out, you know, and I think it's an ongoing, on, ongoing thing because right. Lesbian connection is, it is, it was circulated for, I think their tagline is like not for lesbians by lesbians, but it's, it's kind of that is in the same realm. And mm -hmm. so it's for a specific audience, which, you know, I'm not a part of. And so I really, when I started to do this research, um, this article, this chapter, I had to really think about that. I mean, I thought about that before, specifically covering, um, I was covering as a journalist, um, a historically black neighborhood in St. Pete. And I was teaching students, like we were, we had a partnership with their paper there. So we were helping write stories for the community paper, but how do we do this? And should we do this? Is it ethical? Um, and is it ethical for me to write about these, this, these women and this community? And, you know, I, I think, you know, so part of it can be like, okay, well, if you're not the person to write about it, you can then make a connection with someone who might be more connected to the community right? and help make those connections. So I, I thought about that, but then I, I kind of also had to think, well, if I'm only writing about like communities that I embody, then I'm only going to be writing about white men. Hmm. And if my, my major project looks at Florida communities, so it's like, um, you know, hopefully ends up being a, like a book length or like, you know, just different things, right? And or different chapters. So if I'm only focusing on my embodied identity, then I'm, I'm commit, like, I'm totally neglecting right. all these other communities, right? And, and so I also think it's really interesting to think about gender too and like gender identity and, and what space, you know, what exactly that means. And when you're approaching this kind of research. Um, so what made sense to me and what feels right to me is to kind of foreground this with the people that I'm, with the people that I'm interviewing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I talk about it with them. And that led to really interesting conversations and also building a relationship and, and stuff and more trust. Um, and I think circulating the drafts back to them because it's more collaborative. Um, but I'm still, I'm still on the, I still don't know exactly the best way to answer that. I just, I just, that's what it feels right for me right now. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not toward the complete end of this dissertation, but the project that I have is is wrapping up fairly soon. And I, even after like data has been collected and like I've done the analysis and whatnot, I'm still wondering like, is this okay? Like, is it right for me to do this? And I've tried to build in these things to like make me feel okay as well with like community feedback. But I think you're right. Like, I don't think that process will ever go away. And I think it's just maybe an aspect of research, at least research working with people and their stories that is always just going to be there maybe. And I think, you know, just being transparent, but it, it also like limits 
some of the data collected, right? So mm -hmm. um, the, the, the group that I was specifically looking at, there were some lesbian separatists in there. So, you know, they're not going to necessarily want to talk to me to me about the researchers is totally real and i'm like right i'm into that like hey you know like do you do you and i'm totally here for that and i yeah. support that and if that's your choice so that being said it's like i'm not the only person that i think should be doing research on it but if i can be like intentional and and don't and try to cause as little harm as possible because you know i've been writing about people for a long time and i'm thinking there's always that risk like of of you know exposing bringing harm to someone I never I don't, don't want to do that about the community you know my community and right um but it's hard you know yeah because like the IRB of course always has things in place but when it comes to stuff like oral history projects and storytelling and qualitative methods kind of <laughs> a little bit more uh writ large there's always just like a, oh, it's fine, do whatever. You're not handling like human specimens or whatever, human specimens, human spe material. I forget what the language was, but you're not actually right. like working with people's right. lives or their bodies, but in a sense you still are, right? So yeah, that's all to say it's tough. <laughs> Some of the folks are like in their eighties that I'm interviewing. Mm -hmm. So these are stories that, you know, when we think about the, the generation of LGBTQ and queer like leaders and activists, I mean, we, you know, try to document their stories and as right. respectfully as possible, but you were talking about your project. How did you navigate that? So part of how I tried to approach this project was through like through cultural rhetorics, understandings of relationality and using that as an, as an ethics guiding research. So part of my argument, since I'm handling like Twitter data, like tweets from queer and trans folks uh, of color online, I don't want to put them in, put their tweets essentially in a way that might put like bring harm, as you say. So part of that is, oh wait, let me back up because this, let me talk about myself on my own podcast in a way that sounds smart. So using that ethics of relationality I'm trying to approach this by countering this big data, anonymized data approach to social media research. Because if you listen to cultural rhetorics and understand that stories are all we are, as Malia Pal et al. would say, um, anonymizing people's Twitter data or their social media data removes the context of their lives, their identities, their embodied realities. So I'm trying to account for that through like a protective stance of like, if you ask me any of this information, I'm not going to tell you like my social media data collector thing has that data and it's there and I account for it, but I'm not going to tell you anything if you need me to. And if that makes me sound less assured as a researcher, then that's totally fine. Right? Like I'm, if I look less of a researcher or something for that, that's totally fine. So long as their stories and their tweets are protected. And of course this is all public data or like semi-public data, but I still try to bridge that line between anonymizing things. Like if I'm using a tweet as an example, I mess with the words so that a Boolean search won't show, like won't find it through any kind of search or anything. So there's certain methods that I take to like protect that data but for the most part, it's just constantly questioning, like, is this okay? Maybe don't include this tweet 
or maybe exclude this because it's, it's talking about something that's too real, like a partner dying of HIV or AIDS, because that's what I'm looking at. So yeah, just all those considerations. Yeah, and I think that's so important because I think about, you know, it's taken me kind of a, a you know, over the years writing, but it's like the community that I'm writing about that I'm a part of. I you can do objective research and put research out there, but I still want to protect and as much as, mm. as, as I can because there already been so much violence and you know like this the stuff that i'm looking at is archival you could find you can go to the archives it so it is public but like at the same time um a lot of people haven't read it you know so like not publishing names of folks necessarily right. um even if it was published in there if i haven't gotten their consent to do that um stuff like that right it's hard. And I don't think that I, you know, and it's, it's interesting because I was kind of figuring this out as I went, because I thought it was going to be a whole different thing. And like, oh yeah, I've written about queer stuff and like, I got this. And then like, you know, I'm, I'm in these kind of ethical issues, which I think are really great to consider, especially because I'm writing like more chapters and stuff. So if I would have kind of started with a chapter that felt easier to write, you know, then I wouldn't have, necessarily frame these these questions so early on in the research so I'm really grateful that it happened and I'm still grappling with it and probably you know love any ideas of how to do it better you know of course right I'm yeah, sure there's people out there listening to you who are like okay good I'm not the only one <laughs> I appreciate that I love that you know and I not to get like too in the weeds with it but it's also like thinking about like who's publishing the work usually maybe not queer people or doesn't have mm. the same conversations that you know which is great about the anthology is that you know right. those editors are already there with that kind of information and those conversations of course um so I feel really excited to be able to work with them and you know have some guidance from them on that kind of thing as well whereas if I was in maybe a different publication um I wouldn't have that same kind of right community yeah yeah, having folks who are part of the community lead these kind of projects is so nice, I should say, because there's so many things. <laughs> like at the start, there's so many things you don't have to explain, which is nice, which I find difficult sometimes because I hate having to, like, I'm sorry, listeners, but I hate having to explain things to straight people. <laughs> like, I don't have to, I hate having to explain queer rhetorical practices to straight people who would be like, girl, what, like, what, what's that? Like, why are you right. saying it this way? And like, not that way. And it's like, cause everything's girl to me. I don't know. Like, what do you, I don't know. What do you want from me? Yeah. This, this AirPod case is girl. This, this water bottle is a she, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> uh, same. Yeah. And you, so I have, I come from a creative writing, like program you know back in the day and we had so many conversations about like audience right like if you're in a workshop mm -hmm. with only straight folks obviously you can get great feedback or you know but it's still like how much do you want to explain especially with like language practices or um, right. words and stuff like that because if you're over explaining then it can be very boring because your reader's like okay girl I already know this <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah totally um, I do kind of want to pivot to another project that I'm working on because um, I'm looking for interview participants. So mm. maybe it could be a good like opportunity. I'm looking for specifically 
So I, another thing that I'm working on is creative writers who teach composition, like first year composition or some kind of, you know, rhetoric or discourse mm. um, class who maybe have a background as an MFA or just creative writer. Um, Cause I, I, I didn't necessarily realize this until I became more um, in the writing studies and first year kind of composition side of things, but there's kind of a disciplinary conversation um, maybe disconnect for some folks. So mm. sometimes in the folks I've talked to, creative writers may feel a little bit difficult situating themselves in their like practices. Um, but once they do, it's all all love. It's all great. Like, and I so I had a, kind of that um, situation, but not as much as other folks that I've talked to. Mm. Um, so I'm just kind of interviewing folks about their experiences and how to kind of enculturate um, so we can keep that conversation ongoing and validate people and, right. you know, help with their teaching and just have, you know, more communication. Right. That. Totally. I, I love that idea. Here at MSU, there's quite a number of people who have MFAs who are creative writers, who are fiction writers, um, non fiction and fiction writers who teach in our first year writing program. Cause as a graduate TA, I'm also teaching in the first year writing program. So I get to speak with a lot of them. So yeah, I see those disciplinary tensions sometimes, but then like when things kind of gel together, it works out great. And I've seen some wonderful like curriculum that people have created that I would never have thought about as someone with a non-creative background. Like maybe I am a creative, who knows, but without like All writing training. is creative. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> But like without that like proper training as it were, I guess, um, totally, yeah, I love that idea. I'm just gonna say that I started, you know, teaching and as a first first year writing and, and I think I really resisted it as a creative writer because I didn't really know anything, mm. you know, and it seems like, oh, it's a required class. Students don't wanna be there. You know, there's all these like narratives about what first year composition is and who's in the class, you know? Right. Then I get in the class and I, I love it. You know, I like, okay, yes. this is great. <laughs> yeah. I love you know? first year writing. I think if we can have these conversations and maybe reframe it, I think it will just be good, good for, you know, those, those uh, grad students and right. those people that work their way up and I, you know, stuff like that. Right. Totally. I can totally see that uh, particularly benefiting graduate TAs coming in from maybe like if there's an independent writing and rhetoric studies department or a writing program coming in from like English studies or like a creative writing program, I can totally see something like this benefiting them and being tuned into those disciplinary conversations and how things can work well together. Cause yes, 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 yes. All that. I love that project. That sounds cool. And we're, you know, we all have, or not we all, but we have, there's similar interests. We're just not to go too deep. We're using different like Lexus, right? We're, we just have different right. language. We just have different frameworks and angles, which is cool. But like, how do they overlap? How do they inform each other? Right. And at the end of the day, like, you know, we're trying to teach our students. So how do people just feel more comfortable to bring in their like writing practices and their embodied experiences, you know? And so part what I'm doing is interviewing folks who I'm interviewing grad TAs all the way up or not all the way up. That sounds, you know, not exactly how it is, but like at different points in their careers. So I'm like interviewing mm -hmm. instructors, uh, associate professors, WPAs, writing center folks, just just all trying to touch on different aspects of that. 
That sounds nice. Very cool. After this, I can probably send you an email to some people who would definitely love to talk about that. Uh, at least hear from MSU if you'd like more participants, because I know people here who've been definitely thinking about this as well. So I would love, I appreciate that so much because yeah. now I'm just kind of like, you know, snowballing, sampling, like word of mouth, whoever. Oh, I know this yeah. person, whatever, you know, which I think is a great way to approach it. But also I want to try to get as many people they're very early in the projects. Um, yeah. Anything to, to help that project along, I'm down for it because this sounds cool. I love it. I appreciate that. Yeah. And then maybe in a couple of, well, hopefully listeners, if this podcast is still going, you can't see, but I'm like crossing my fingers. If this podcast is still going, then you can revisit and then tell us more about that project later on too. So, well, this has been great. Thank you so much again for joining us. This has been an excellent conversation. Do you have any emails or professional websites or some handles that you'd like to share to the audience? Yes. So you can find me on Twitter at TylerMTG. I don't really tweet that much anymore um, during the semester, you know. Right. Feels claustrophobic. My professional website is my name, Tyler gillespie.com and you can email me especially about anything um, but if you are interested in being interviewed my email that I'm using is my work email um, and that's t-m-g-i-l-l-e-s at olmis.edu awesome and so I'll I have everything linked in the show notes yeah. okay yeah. well yeah, thank you again Anybody, sorry, I know I'm just talking way too much, but like any, okay. I mean, anybody that wants to reach out, I mean, I live and work in the South, you know, which is its own, its own stuff. So specifically if you're in around, you know, there and you want to reach out, I'm here. Yeah, definitely. I know there is a burgeoning amount of work dedicated to looking at queer rural spaces in the South in particular and in the Midwest, I think, because too often I think, everything queer focuses LA, San Francisco, New York, which is great. There's like lots of history, but there's so much that still needs to be said. So totally. Yeah. Love that. Well, thank you again for joining me and yeah. Thank you listeners. Thank you so much. Yes. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about this and other episodes at tellmemorepod.com, where you'll also find transcripts for each episode. The opening and closing theme song is Meter by Slow Alarm, music licensed under an attribution non-commercial share-alike license, and special thanks to Slow Alarm for providing the music free of charge. You can learn more about Slow Alarm at nulltealrecords.blogspot.com. Be well. <laughs>